Hear the word of the Lord. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front of the door, as he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up, take your bed, and walk. But so that you may know, the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat, went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I've known Isaac my entire life. See, we grew up together in a small village outside of Capernaum, and the four of us were inseparable. Elijah, Josiah, Isaac, and I. And one day, we were heading to the river to go play like we always do. But this this time was special. You see, I I just saved up all my coins, and I had bought my first ever brand new rope. And I was so proud of it. I carried it along with me everywhere that I went. So... As we head to the river, rope in hand, I notice a huge tree on the side with a branch hanging right over the edge of the water. So naturally, I grab my rope, I swing it up there, I take a few steps back, I run towards it, I grab on, and I swing into the water. It was incredible. Then Elijah follows me, and then Josiah, and then it was Isaac's turn. See, Isaac had the largest, most hilarious, goofiest laugh you would have ever heard. He takes a few steps back. We're cheering his name, and he runs up, he grabs the swing, and he swings into the water. But this time, the rope had slid a little bit to the left on the branch. He landed in the water. We're all cheering his name still. But what we hadn't seen was the rock that Isaac had landed on neck first. And so we swim over to him, we shake him, he's, he's unconscious. We're, Isaac, Isaac, we know something's wrong because he's, he's not laughing anymore. So we pick him up out of the water, we carry him home. The three of us, eight years old, trying our best, his limp, cut, bleeding, broken, and bruised body. And once the local healers tell us that he's paralyzed, we visit every day. And I had heard people questioning and talking about what he must have done to get on the wrong side of God, what he must have said to deserve this kind of punishment. He, did not, he was eight years old, he did nothing. But life continues. We all still played in the river. Isaac didn't. We played games. Isaac couldn't. We went to rabbi school. Isaac didn't. 
We all got married. We had kids. And every day became a few times a week, which became a few times a month. And then once a year, then never. I, I, I was married. I had kids. I, I had virtually forgotten of Isaac. And then one day, I'm heading back to Capernaum to go take care of some business on the coast. And outside the city gates, there's a group of beggars sitting by a well. I walk, head down, trying not to talk to them. And one of them raspily whispers, Joseph, Joseph. So I say, nope, not me, can't be me, keep walking. And then again, Joseph. I look down, and sure enough, it's, it's Isaac. And after all these years, he's landed up here, outside, begging, alone. So I, I find Elijah and Josiah in Capernaum. And we all meet together, and we talk to Isaac a little bit more. And so I start coming back to Capernaum every once in a while. And we move Isaac into Josiah's brother's Jacob's house. And it became about every other week or so. But one time when I was heading back to Capernaum, I hear news of Jesus coming home. And after hearing what he had done recently, I knew I just had to see him. But I also knew if he was the real deal, Isaac needs to see him. So I tell Elijah, Josiah, and Jacob the good news. And early the next morning, we, we, we get up before the sun rises, and we go, and we go to where they say he's going to be, but the streets are lined with people already. We don't get inside. We don't, we don't even get near the property. We've basically given up, but then Elijah looks at me, and he says, okay, Joseph, hold on. What if we go under the roof we, we make a hole, and then we slide him down into it. Hold on. Elijah, you want me to go onto a roof, grab a shovel, and dig a hole into this man's house who we don't know, and slide our paralyzed friend into it, onto a man who could possibly heal him? And he says, exactly. I don't remember much, except just the burning in my arms as I'm digging into this man's roof, tiles going everywhere, and then we're sliding our most vulnerable, paralyzed friend on his mat with rope fastened to every corner, down on top of a man who could possibly heal him. He lands, Jesus looks down at him, and then up at us, smiling, and then he says, son, your sins are forgiven. His sins, really? Really, Jesus, his, sin, his sins are fine. It's his legs that don't work. And we're, we're all sticking our heads into the hole, watching. And the scribes, just ruining everything like they always do, they say, blasphemy this and blasphemy that. And honestly, I could not care less who is sinning against who right now. I'm about to hop down that hole and carry Isaac out of there myself if I have to. And Jesus looks at them. And again, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. But then he says, stand up. Take up your mat and go home. And Isaac stands up. He bends down. He picks up his mat. He bends back up and he walks through the crowd of people, through the doors outside. And we jump off that roof, not really caring about property damage. And we run to him and we hug him and we embrace him. And he laughs. 
He has not laughed since he was eight years old, and he laughs and he laughs. And as we're walking back, back to his mother's house, who he has not seen since he's been stranded on, onto the streets, he says, hey, Joseph, it's kind of hot outside. How about we take a crack at that river again? Thank you, Spencer. So I want to tell you a story about uh, one Wednesday night. I was in kind of late elementary school, and we had found a softball at my church. And uh, it was me and my brother and a few other friends, and uh, we did what you do with the softball. We threw it up on the roof. It was slanted. It would roll back down. And whoever caught it got to throw it again. And so we're just kind of waiting for everything to finish. We're out there playing a game that we invented. And, and, and uh, it, was, it finally got to be my turn. I caught the ball, and I was ready to throw it up there. And, and somebody opens a door to the courtyard, and my brother and all my friends just completely disappear. And I'm alone holding this softball as an adult comes and finds me and says, aren't you Jerry's boy? Yeah, they had been having some sort of like men's business meeting after the Wednesday night church. And, uh, and I, the guy didn't have to start with my dad, Right. I mean, he could have explained, hey, you're, the ball is going to damage the roof. Uh, we're trying to have a conversation. We keep hearing this thump roll. But he had to just escalate everything. He ups the ante by saying, I know who your father is. Jesus, up to this point in Mark, is performing miracles. He's healing the sick, casting out demons, curing leprosy, which, by the way, only the Messiah can do. But it's not enough to know that Jesus has authority or wisdom or power. You can believe that he is wise. You can believe he is good. But as Mark shows us in this story, that's not enough. You need to believe that he is God. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for our lives, for the way that you have shown us innumerable blessings. Father, the way that you have poured out your love on us. And Father, now in the busyness of our week, we pause for a moment to hear a word from you. So Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to, to your word, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching that I may speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says. So Jesus calls himself something that's kind of peculiar in this text. He calls himself the son of man. Now, if he had said a son of man, then probably what he might have meant was he's claiming to be human, but that's not what he says. He says the son of man. And what he's doing there is he's reaching back into the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture, and and he's, he's quoting scripture there, and he's using this enigmatic phrase. It shows up everywhere in the prophets. It appears again and again and again. In Ezekiel, it's used over 90 times, and the way Ezekiel means the son of man, he means the prophet's prophet. 
It also shows up in the book of Daniel when you get into that apocalyptic part of that book. And, and it, the, Daniel's talking about kind of the cosmic powers that exist, the, the, the forces of good and evil, the principalities that are in the cosmos. And there, the Son of Man appears, and it's representative of a human, but it's like the cosmic king. It's the Messiah of Israel. And then it shows up again in Isaiah as, as the rightful heir to the throne of David. The, the Messiah. And so whatever Jesus means when he calls himself this phrase, the Son of Man, he's linking back to these Old Testament ideas. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the cosmic king. He is the Messiah of Israel. And the thing that I want us to notice here is that, at least in this part of the book of Mark, when, when Jesus says, when Mark says the word faith, it's a noun. Now, that's a little bit different than, say, the book of James, where, where faith is almost always a verb. You are faithing, you are believing, and that, that leads you to action. Here in this particular part, Jesus sees their faith, and it's a noun. But what's peculiar is it's, it's plural. Their faith. He's not talking about the paralytic. He's talking about their friends. Even though faith is a noun in the book of Mark, it's always the catalyst for action. Faith always leads to something else. It's what starts something big. And he sees their faith, which kind of cuts against the grain for us as Americans, because Americans live in a culture that's very individualistic. It's all about me and my vote and my preferences and my choices. That's the way you kind of define yourself as, as an individual. And we exist in a church culture that is revivalistic, which means that we place a lot of emphasis on that one moment when you make the decision to follow God. And so imagine our culture is very focused on the individual, and we place a lot of importance on the moment when you decide to follow Jesus, and we might miss something in this text if we're not careful. What I believe often overshadows the we believe. Jesus sees their faith. The man is paralyzed, but the situation is not simple. It's not just physical, but it's also something that's emotional and mental. Asking the question, why? How did I get into this spot? What did I do wrong? It's a question that transcends just his body. I find it fascinating, and it was right before first service, um, that this came to me, and so it's probably wrong. Give it a pass. But did you notice in the story that Jesus goes home? Was Jesus in his own house when this happens? Like, could you imagine that? You're in your house. You came home. There's a lot of people there. You're teaching, and all of a sudden, the roof begins to cave in as someone is up there digging their way through. Maybe Jesus is thinking to himself, yep, I'm going to have to get an insurance claim for that. But Jesus could have just healed this man and moved on. 
I mean, interruptions are going to happen in Jesus' ministry over and over and over. And he was probably in the middle of a really good sermon when all of this begins to happen. And he could have just healed the man and then kept going. But he, he, he doesn't. Jesus chooses this moment to pick a fight. Because it's not just enough that he can heal a paralyzed man. Those friends, the scribes, and the crowd that's all around them need to understand that Jesus is something, something more. And so what I want us to do today is kind of consider this text from a lot of different angles. So I want us to think about how does this sound from the perspective of the friends, or how does this sound from the perspective of those scribes that are in the room, and how does this look to the crowd? You know, from these friends' perspective, they, they heard about Jesus, and so they're just going to take a chance. And so they, they gather their paralytic friend up along with his bedding, and they, they just go to the house. They're trying to get in, but it's too crowded. And so they, they get on the roof, and they use their hands or tools to, to work their way in, and then they lowered their friend down. And that's not an easy thing to do. They have to work together to make that happen. Otherwise, their friend is going to tip right off that mat and fall. Uh, the paralyzed man throughout this entire story is silent. You remember last week the story with the man who's cured from leprosy? He is bold and brash in the way that he interrupts Jesus' ministry. He has faith. He believes in Jesus, and so he is healed. But this man does nothing. Jesus sees their faith. And this is tremendously important. I don't want us to miss this. Your faith has the power to change the lives of others. Faith is a noun in this case, but faith requires action. And so I want us to take a step back from this idea that, that faith is kind of your individual personal belief or agreement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. While that's true, that is the, that is the threshold of the door that you walk through as you experience the fullness of what it means to be part of the kingdom. Another way of thinking about faith is not just an assent to an intellectual belief that God exists and he's out there and he's real, but rather faith is allegiance. And in declaring your trust in Jesus Christ, what you're going to declare is that you're going to be part of that kingdom that is coming all around us. That God's God's will and God's might is, is encroaching on reality. It's unfolding in every which way. And when you have the opportunity, you want to be a part of that. Your faith has the power to change the lives of others. If you're willing to be bold enough to try. I think the other question that I think about is, do you have that friend that is willing to tell you the truth? Stuck on the mat. Begging kind of works. It's, it's a life. You've settled in with the life that you have, and then in that moment you're interrupted with a friend who's willing to tell you the truth about something new. Do you have the friend that's willing to say the hard thing to you, which is, you're going to have to move. You're going to have to go. There is something that's for you, but it's not going to be easy to get there. 
It's not enough that Jesus is a miracle worker slash exorcist. These things are true, but Jesus is something more. Take it from the perspective of the scribes. Jesus takes this moment to pick a fight. He uses this as an opportunity to tell him who he is. He's already demonstrated that he has authority. He's already demonstrated he has power over demons. He has already demonstrated he is the Messiah. And the the priests and the religious system has taken notice. This time, the scribes are listening to to Jesus. This is the first time that they are there. And it would have been simpler just to heal the guy. And they take exception, honestly, to the claim that Jesus has that he has the authority to forgive sins. After all, only God can do that. That's rooted deep in the idea of the Shema. The Lord thy God, the Lord is one. You aren't him. And frankly, the temple and religious system is the only way to mediate that forgiveness. But here is a man claiming that he can do that. And so Jesus turns the question, which is easier, he asks, to forgive or to heal? Well, both of those are impossible. Jesus asked which, but really what he meant was whom? For whom is it possible to forgive and to heal? The answer is God. And then Jesus heals the man. Jesus works and moves outside of the temple system. And I don't want us to miss the irony here. In Jesus' claim that he is God in his act, that he forgives one person of their sins, the religious system interprets this as blasphemy. And his actions uh, sow the seed for Jesus' eventual death. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to be after him from this point on. And they will bring about his death. But then God uses the self-giving act of crucifixion to forgive all people their sins. And it brings us back to the question, who is Jesus? And then there's the crowd. And on some level, this story is about encountering barriers, barriers of the roof, barriers of our preconceived notions and expectations of what Messiah means. And to be honest, if we think of ourselves in the place of the crowd, it's difficult to imagine that we are the ones that are blocking the door to somebody else's necessary healing as they encounter Jesus. But I think we need to be aware that sometimes we are. It's in us not being open to those that are on the outside trying to get in. It's us not paying attention to those who are trying to see Jesus, but we're captivated, and so we aren't welcoming. I think as a church, we have to ask hard questions like, do we make room in our community for singles and young adults? Is there space for them here? And deep down, if you don't know somebody in our church like that, and you aren't actively friends with them, that answer is no. Do we make room for newcomers who don't understand our insider language? 
just yesterday, Natalie and I had this great opportunity to do uh, two things. Uh, the first one was we went to the balloon festival uh, that happened, uh, which was kind of interesting and odd because there were no balloons. But I didn't mind that much because there were funnel cakes there, and who doesn't love a good funnel cake? And in fact, I wondered yesterday, why isn't there a place that just serves funnel cakes year-round somewhere in Abilene? And there may be a place that does that, but I do not need to know where it is. So don't tell me. I'm working on this already, okay? Just give me a chance. And, and so we went to the, the balloon festival. And then the other thing we did was we went to the, the Abilene Philharmonic's uh, free rehearsal. And so we got to see this world-class uh, cellist uh, run through with the orchestra, and then we went to the non-balloon balloon festival. And I got to tell you the truth, those are two very different sets of people that go to those two events. One of them has more tattoos than the other. But I need to tell you the truth. If we aren't trying to reach both of those groups with the message of Jesus Christ, then we are failing in our effort to restore Abilene. Because they all need to hear about his love. Sometimes the crowd becomes the barrier. So where do we find ourselves in this story? With the friends desperate to bring someone to Jesus, willing to tear through a roof to get them there, passionate and will not cease with the scribes, more concerned about the systems and the theology and the right practices that they nearly miss the miracle that happens right in front of them, limiting access to the forgiveness of sin. God is not a tame lion. God is not contained by the temple system of the first century, and as much as we try, we cannot tame him to our system either. Or do we find ourselves with the, cra the crowd? The crowd is amazed, but being amazed is not the same thing as being a disciple. And I find it fascinating that the crowd is left behind in the story. There is a difference between admiring Jesus and allowing your life to be changed by him. And it all rests on the question, who do you believe he is? You can admire his wisdom. You can respect his power. But the question Jesus poses, do you believe that I am the son of God? That question changes everything. It might just change our city. It might just change the world. If you have your bulletin with you, we're doing a, a, a series of exercises, spiritual disciplines. I want to draw your attention to it. On one side, you write your name and your email address. Um, fill that out so that we can follow up with you. And you do this every week um, so that you can commit to these. On the back, there's a few choices you can make. The first is, is, is pretty simple, but it does take a commitment. I want to encourage you this week to read the entire book of Mark uh, in its entirety in one setting. It'll take you a couple of hours, so just block off some time if you can pull that off. If you're not into reading or that's just not your thing, um, Netflix right now has the Gospel of Mark 
on, it's a movie, and you can watch it. It's a verbatim of all of the words in the book. And so if you just want to carve out two hours and watch it instead of reading, I'll give you credit for that. So just check that out. The second is, is one of those ways which faith uh, has feet. Faith is the catalyst for things. Uh, in about a month, we're going to have a trunk and treat here where uh, our, our youth group is uh, in their huddles are going to decorate cars and they're going to give out candy to all the folks in our neighborhood. And this is one of those ways that we can be good neighbors to the people around us. It's one of those ways that you get people in the parking lot who would never come any other way. They may never feel comfortable walking through these doors, but they'll take some candy and, and that's a step that brings them closer to Jesus. And so if you're interested, decorate, and you want to decorate a car, maybe you want to do it with your friends, um, sign up for that, check a box, and uh, we'll follow up with you later this week. If you're not going to be able to be here that week or decorating a car is more than what you're interested in, uh, you can just bring a bag of candy. So check the other box or check them both, and uh, we will follow up with you this week. Uh, God is in our midst, and he's doing fascinating things, miracles even. Do we have the eyes to see and do we have the ears to hear? Do we have the faith that's ready to change our city, our church, and our world? Let's stand and sing to that God together.